scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 25. We'll read through the 34th verse. And uh, this is perfect for after our announcements because it has baptism. It has uh, not the Apostles' Creed, but it has some apostles. And it also has Mexican food. So... <laughs> So this is, it's also a very exciting portion of scripture. I am going to start with 24 just so you have the setting. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steve. Good morning. We, we read here in Acts 16 about Paul and Silas sitting in the horror of a Roman prison. But when they begin singing, some wild things start happening. There is something, I believe, something special, maybe even something powerful about a group of people singing together. I want to explore this as we think about this story in Acts 16 today. You know, one of the things I really appreciate about this congregation is that you all sing. And not just the, I'm going to open my mouth so it looks like I'm singing words. That's the new kids on the block method to singing. Do you, do you remember the new kids on the block and their lip-syncing controversy? I think it was in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I remember even as a kindergartner that, that was on my radar and I was appalled. <laughs> the, the audacity. Who do they think they are? But, but seriously, I, I am so thankful that this is a congregation that sings and for Kevin, for our leader who intentionally builds in those dynamic moments that sort of force us to sing quite often. It is so encouraging, even this morning, um, to sit back and to hear your voices, the voices of my brothers and sisters, declaring hope, declaring trust in Jesus Christ, despite the various difficulties that I know you all are walking through despite the heaviness of the world around us, to hear voices declaring hope and trust in the midst of that. For me, and I know for many others, those are truly faith-building moments. And it is 
I believe, an incredibly important part of what we do here on Sundays. Because singing is not just about me and my personal worship service with God. It is a communal affair. One of the primary benefits of congregational singing is that our songs become these markers for the community that purvey truth and beauty to us. They, they tell and retell again and again the story that we have been swept up in. And as we tell that story in song, it seeps deep into our souls, becomes a part of us. And when that happens, I think that rises to the surface even in the most unlikely of moments, which is perhaps one of the things we see taking place here in Acts 16, Paul and Silas in a Roman prison. So last week we read a story from Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas back in Acts 14. Today we jump ahead a couple of chapters, Acts 16, where Paul is now on his second missionary journey, this time with Silas. And they begin that trip by returning to some of the churches Paul had started on his first trip in Galatia, churches like the one in the city of Lystra, which we considered last week in Acts 14. They then, following their time in Galatia, head to Macedonia, where they visit cities like Thessalonica and Philippi, Philippi, which is the setting for today's well-known story. Now, Like Lystra, Philippi did not have a synagogue, perhaps because there weren't enough Jews in the region to necessitate it. But either way, faithful Jews still found an informal place to gather and pray. So quite naturally, when Paul arrives in a new city, he is going to begin joining, in the absence of a synagogue, he begins joining them in that informal place to pray. Verse 16 is where we pick up the story. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So one day as they were in this place of prayer, there was a girl who Luke says had what he calls a spirit of divination, presumably some kind of possession which gave her the ability to peer into the future and prophesy, presumably with some degree of accuracy, about maybe what one should do in a certain situation or what you could expect, which wasn't altogether uncommon in the ancient Greek world. People would often attempt to contact various gods for Guidance in personal matters, maybe like a marriage, or guidance in public matters, like whether or not a government should go to war. It was a fairly common endeavor, and a lot of times divination in the ancient world was not altogether unlike fortune-telling in today's world. Maybe it was primarily a matter of con artists taking advantage of people for a profit. This is a tale as old as time. Whether we would think of somebody like P.T. Barnum, who had that famous phrase, there's a sucker born every minute, and then he would take advantage of those suckers born every minute. 
Or we might think of something we are much more familiar with, the prevalence of technologically savvy scams of the 21st century. Wherever our minds go when we think of con artists, this sort of thing is not new. This was very common in the ancient world as well. But Luke says this young girl had a spirit of prophecy that enabled her to predict the future with some degree of accuracy. So whatever is going on with this girl, she is being exploited by her owners for material gain. So finally, we're at the second verse of our text. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned its, you know, a very eloquent storytelling. Having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So according to Luke, it's almost as though the powers enabling this girl to see the future begin sounding some sort of an alarm when she comes into contact with Paul. She starts following them around and calling out loudly, these are servants of the Most High God who are telling you about salvation, which I think most in this room would affirm that is actually a true statement that she is making. They are servants of the Most High God proclaiming the way of salvation, but a statement that was likely misunderstood by the girl herself as well as those who heard her. Because folks in Philippi, when they heard a phrase like the Most High God, they probably would not have immediately thought Yahweh. They probably would have thought Zeus or some other god. Either way, these loud outbursts from this girl became apparently quite distracting. Luke says it got to the point that Paul is really annoyed. And so he commands the spirit to depart in Jesus' name. Whatever happens from this point forward, we know that something dramatic happened. Something observable happened with this girl because those who were exploiting her quickly realized our source of revenue has dissipated. Whatever happened with the girl, we no longer can use her to gain a profit. Verse 19 but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
one thing I, I think we see at this point in the story is that it seems that folks in Philippi are fine with Paul and Silas doing what they want to do until it starts affecting them personally. In this case, until it starts impacting, interfering with the economy. The more things change, the more they stay the same, apparently. Now they were no longer just speaking nonsense that everybody could ignore because, well, it's non-threatening noise. No, now it is having real consequences. And so they take Paul and Silas, they strip them down, they beat them with rods. The jailer puts them in the inner prison in stocks, the darkest, most isolated place, and holds them there. I think perhaps on a deeper level, something that's worth considering is, I think this is a picture of what happens often when the kingdom of Jesus begins to confront the powers presently at work in our world. It's not always fleshed out like it is for Paul and Silas, but there is always going to be opposition when the kingdom of Jesus begins to confront the powers at work in our world, primarily because of a fear of losing control. I, I think we see this all the time. We'll come back and consider that in a moment. So we get to the por portion of the story that we read for our scripture reading. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Just want to pause there and think about that. How in the world is that what they choose to do in a moment like that? Praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. As we continue reading that story, as soon as the jailer realizes that his prisoners are probably gone, as soon as he realizes what that is going to mean for him when news of this reaches his superiors, he assumes the only honorable thing left to do is to take his own life. Paul sees what's going on, so he cries out to stop him. Wait, wait a second, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. The jailer must have been baffled. Why? Your, your stocks are unlocked. The prison doors are open. Why in the world are you still here? You're, you had your chance at freedom. It's as though Paul and Silas now put to words the reality that they're singing in the confines of a Roman prison expressed implicitly earlier. It's as though they are declaring, we, we never lost our freedom. So verse 30, the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? Now, I don't, maybe this is a spiritual question from the beginning. Tell me about this God that I heard you praising. Or maybe it was a question of self-preservation. How can I get out of this mess and escape? Either way, Paul and Silas take the conversation in the direction 
of true freedom, which, in their opinion, they never lost. Say, you want to be saved? You want to get out of this mess you're in? Believe in Jesus. I I know this sounds really trite, but I'm going to say it anyway. I wonder if that would have been their response, whichever direction the question was coming from. Whether it was a genuine spiritual intrigue that prompted that question, or whether it was a question birthed out of a desire for self-preservation, it seems for Paul and Silas this is the answer. You want salvation? You want freedom? You want life? Believe in Jesus. Now, obviously, even in Paul and Silas's experience, belief in Jesus doesn't change every difficult situation. But perhaps one of the things this story teaches us is that it does change our perspective. Perhaps this story teaches us that it gives us the power to praise The power to have hope, even in the midst of horrifying situations. And like this story, singing in the midst of difficulty, I think, still has a unique power. Maybe not all, probably not usually a power that prompts an earthquake to get you out of a mess that you've created, but a power nonetheless. I I believe that to be true. So we could think about it this way. Paul and Silas are, are singing in the brutal confines of a first century prison. And I wonder if they can sing because, though they are in stocks, not at all cared for, they trust that they still are the ones who are truly free. And I wonder if it's possible that their singing actually reminds them of that fact, fact, reminds them of their most fundamental reality that their external situation hid in that moment. Is it possible that this is a part of the power of music, the power of song? seeps down into our souls, becomes a part of us, and then can bubble to the surface at the most surprising times. I'm sure you've all experienced something like this. I I regularly have this experience, and it's, by the way, quite annoying to Nanette when I have this experience, but my memory will be jogged about a song from high school or junior high Often a song that I haven't heard or thought about in decades, but I give it a listen, you know, a little stroll down memory lane. And almost without fail, I begin singing every lyric accurately. And I even surprise myself, like, how in the world is that silly song still locked away in some deep, dark recess of my mind? And that's an imperfect analogy, of course, but I think that is a simple example of why singing 
is such an important thing for the church. Because songs of faith, songs of hope and trust become a part of us and then can bubble to the surface in the darkest of moments. Our, our call to worship this morning was from Psalm 47. And it had this repeated refrain, sing, sing. Clap your hands, shout to God with loud songs of joy. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a song. This is a fairly common declaration in the book of Psalms. We, we could think of Psalm 100 that instructs us in this way, make a joyful noise to the Lord. We come into his courts with singing and in so doing remind ourselves that God is good, remind ourselves that he made us, that we are his, and that his steadfast love endures. And I understand that there are many moments in our lives, and especially with a traumatic tragedy on the minds of so many from this past week, as violence um, is unmitigated and devastating, sometimes we sing not because our external situation is easy or happiness is the most natural response in that moment. Sometimes we sing in spite of that. We sing to remember to whom we belong. We sing to remember that we have a shepherd who is walking with us. And as we are reminded of our shepherd walking with us, we gain new perspective, a new way to understand the present moment, which though real and often incredibly heavy, is still not the most fundamental reality. And perhaps the more we sing these songs of trust and hope, the more we train ourselves to trust even as the waves are crashing down on us. You know, our Bible concludes with John's revelation. And in that book, we find these repeated references to the saints of God gathering to sing to the Lamb, the King of the universe. And I think it reminds us that God's people, from beginning to end, are a people who sing. We sing not just when things are going well. Think of Paul and Silas sitting in the Roman prison. We sing not because our circumstances naturally lead us to happiness, but we sing to remind ourselves that we are still people of hope. This is what Christians do. You know, Pliny the Younger in the second century, who was a Roman governor in what is modern-day Turkey, he wrote a letter to the emperor at that time, Trajan, to get advice on how to deal with the growing number of Christians who were under his rule. And in the letter, as he describes the practices of these Christians under his rule, he acknowledges, you know, they haven't really committed any crimes except that they refuse to worship the various Roman gods. But 
One of the first things he says in this letter describing the practices of these Christians is this. He says, they meet on a certain day before light where they gather to sing hymns to Christ as to a God. This is what Christians do. Since the beginning, Christians have been known as people who gather to sing hymns to Christ, the Lord of all of creation. And it probably isn't surprising that this is what Christians do. In Ephesians 5, Paul begins offering instructions on how to live as God's people. And one of the things he stresses is singing as we gather. Verse 18, he says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for Paul, singing is not just something we do when we feel happy in the moment, but it is connected in a significant way to how we live. Because as we sing, we are reminding ourselves, even in the darkness, we remind ourselves who God is, and we remind ourselves about who we are to become. And as we do that, our belief, our trust is deepened. So I think one of the primary purposes in congregational singing, it's not just singing love songs to Jesus, where, where you hear the lyrics and you're trying to figure out, is this a religious song or is this a, a song that I heard at a junior high dance? I, and by the way, I actually think there is a time and place for that kind of expression in congregational worship, although I don't think it's the only, in, in my opinion, not even the primary approach to worshiping through song. But one of the primary goals as we sing together is to retell the story whatever is going on around us, to retell the story of God's salvation and the renewal we believe Jesus is bringing to our world. And as we do that, I think it continues to soak deep into our souls. It soaks into our souls in a way that learning facts by reading a book simply is unable to do. And as that story permeates my being, I can then begin to understand my life in light of that story. And so I think in this way, singing is a transformative endeavor. It's not as though we sing when we gather because God is in need of affirmation. No, we are the ones in need of what singing offers because singing transforms us. I heard Austin, he's made this comment a couple of times speaking of the power of song in this way, um, it, its ability to soak deep into our souls. He said, we, we don't sing sermons that we heard in the shower, right? We sing songs, though, because they have that ability to get deep inside of us, and I think that is a part of the transformative power. So, so why do we sing? And maybe a, a more important question in this moment for us is how can we sing when there is so much evil all around us? 
You know, the, the famous hymn declares, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. But that might not be the most immediate emotion we are experiencing. And yet it is a reminder for us that we cling to hope. Many know this song best probably from Sister Act 2. But it was, was it two or one? I think two. But it was actually written in 1905 by Sevilla Martin, who was inspired to write that song by friends she met while traveling throughout New York with her husband. Uh, their friends were Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle, and Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle had a really difficult life. Mrs. Doolittle had been bedridden for 20 years. Mr. Doolittle was confined to a wheelchair. Their external situation um, probably didn't always immediately prompt happiness. One day, uh, Mrs. Sevilla's, or, or Sevilla's husband asked, what is the secret to your bright hopefulness? Because I can see that you on the surface, have an incredibly difficult life. What is the secret to your bright hopefulness despite your great affliction? You live a happy Christian life, and, and as you do, you inspire comfort and hope in all that you interact with. How do you do it? And Mrs. Doolittle's simple reply became the line from the chorus of that song. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. The response was not, things are great, life is easy. There was an honest recognition, though, that it is difficult. But I remind myself of whom I belong to, which offers me new perspective, I know that I have a shepherd walking with me. The reality is we don't sing to deny difficult or heavy realities. And that's why often our songs include lament. We want to give voice to that. We don't sing to deny difficult or heavy realities, but I think we do sing to resist their power. And to remind ourselves that the ache of today is not the only, not even the fundamental reality. We sing to remind ourselves, as has been said, that we are, in fact, Easter people living in a Good Friday world. We, we see the nature of the Good Friday world all around us, but we cling to hope. We sing to remind ourselves that we live in that already not yet tension, where we await the future consummation of the kingdom. And a lot of times that is not difficult to remind ourselves of. We remind ourselves of that every time we turn on the TV or step outside of our front door. We also sing to remind ourselves that there are glimpses of God's kingdom in this moment. And as we see those glimpses of God's kingdom, we are inspired to continue working 
to continue allowing our lives, hopefully, to be signposts pointing ahead to that kingdom. We sing to remind ourselves that one day, everything that is broken will be restored. Everything that is hurting will be healed. Singing is for the church, an expression of hope for the future, and is transformative in this moment, bringing us further and further into God's kingdom, that God's story, even in this moment, might permeate our being. We are people of hope. Today, I believe we are being transformed by the Spirit of God that we might more completely reflect God's glory and create a world where it's possible to live as we await the consummation of God's kingdom. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing together. We're going to gather around the table of our Lord where we celebrate. As we gather around the table, this is, and as we sing, again, we don't deny difficulty. We don't deny heaviness, but we do resist the power of darkness, and we cling to hope. So Holy Spirit, Come. We invite you into this moment. We invite you into our lives to continue transforming us, to continue changing us. We confess and we repent of our sin. pray that you would heal our brokenness, that we might be agents of peace in a broken, tumultuous world. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth today as it is in heaven. And give us the courage to live in alignment with that value. By way of invitation, I want to say a prayer. I'll invite you to the table. We'll make two lines if you're new or visiting and haven't participated in the celebration of the Eucharist with us. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. And when you get to one of these two tables, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. And then we are going to conclude our time together by singing, by continuing to declare our hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Lucas, if you would mind joining me as we 
prepare for communion. O oh God, we join our voices together to sing to you, the King of glory. For you have exalted your only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. Do not leave us comfortless, but send us your Holy Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to that place where our Savior Christ has gone before, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?